So welcome back to the Mountain Stories podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College. I'm Jeff Nichols. I'm co-director of the IMR. The Mountain Stories podcast is where we share the stories of people who live, work, and play in the mountains. You can check out the IMR at the Mountain Commons. That's at medium.com backslash the-mountain-commons. And today is 15 January 2019. I'm in my office waiting for the snow to start, and I'm with Brendan Rensink. He is Assistant Director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, which is a fine center, which I've been on the advisory board of for uh, several years. And Brendan's also Assistant Professor in the Department of History at BYU, and he's the host and producer of Writing Westward podcast, are conversations with authors of new books about the West. He's the project manager and general editor of Intermountain Histories, Digital Public History Project, which is a website and mobile app. And he's got a pretty new book out that came out late last year called Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. Other than that, what do you do with yourself? Uh, <laughs> I, that, that keeps me pretty busy. I imagine. That's about it. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Um, so you're mostly, how would you describe yourself as a historian? An American West historian is kind of my primary field with the ma- major subfields of borderlands and Native American histories. That's where I've been for most of my career. But I'm starting to branch, and I'm, as we're going to talk about, kind of branch into environmental studies um, for the next little while, I think. Why? Because I wanted to marry my love of the outdoors and the environment. You know, just kind of as a personal passion with my academic work. Why not make my work play and my play work, right? Nice. So you, you've been, for a while, a long-distance trail runner, often in the mountains, which is one of the main, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, we've talked a bit about this. And you also, you work and you live near the sort of the foot of Mount Timpanogos, these beautiful, great big mountains. We sort of are at the, the base of other big, beautiful mountains here. How do you think living without those mountains, how, how do you think about it? Well, it's hard not to, you know, living here on the Wasatch Front, like where I grew up in Northwest Washington, we had, you know, lots of foothills and then the Cascades and volcanoes in the distance, you know. But here the mountains are looming over you. You can't not look at them. You, know, you step outside your house and you have 6,000 feet of vertical, you know, climb right in front of you. So it's kind of hard to ignore them. But so I, mean, I step out of my house every day and I look at them and my brain just starts spinning about, oh, look at that ridge line there or look at that there. I've never been up in that little pocket. Um, so it's really special, you know. And I look at these mountains, you know, as, you know, a place for adventure. It's also a place of danger, um, a place that I associate with peace and solitude and spiritual renewal. And it's, it's all just kind of right there waiting. And so I find that a great personal comfort to step out of my house every day and to have all of that just kind of sitting at my doorstep. Sure. So both danger and peace. That's a nice uh, dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the, part of the excitement of, of mountains, right? Yeah. Um, they're horribly dangerous places. Yeah. Um, whether or not you know what you're doing, right? I've had a couple friends, you know, die in the last few years in, in here on the, in the Wasatch, in, in our mountains, and they were more experienced than I am 
in mountains, and mountains are very unforgiving. Uh, we have a we have a previous episode of this podcast where a colleague of mine came, I think, probably as close as a person can come to dying in an avalanche last year. Basically, got driven headfirst through an aspen forest by an avalanche at a hundred miles an hour, and walked away with not minor injuries, but uh, you know, a screwed up shoulder. And That's pretty miraculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, backup skiing. Wow. Yeah, it's. Uh, do you think more about the mountain now that it looms over you than you thought about the mountains when you grew up? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. I don't know if you've been there. It's on the coast, up on the Canadian border. Um, we have a couple small mountain ranges that come down into town, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. You know, hiking and mountain biking and camping and stuff. But I didn't view them as mountains per se, like. My primary thought process wasn't about the, the vertical gain of, you know, mountain cliffs with peaks and so forth, but I view them kind of as just these general nebulous regions that were not the city. Even though they came down into the city, but it was these places of, where, where there was nature, where I could get away from cars and, and the city and so forth, and I could go and recreate and have adventures and, and get away. Looking back, I realized that they were mountains, but I didn't think of them in terms of canyons and peaks and ridges and so forth. Yeah. Whereas these mountains, I think because of their kind of imposing visual nature and their proximity, it's a little harder just to view it as kind of just a general nondescript nature area. Like it's definitely a mountain. It's not just a park. It's a mountain. Um, but also I'm, you know, I've gotten much more into hiking and trail running. And so I am thinking about peaks and I'm thinking about ridges and I'm thinking about routes and where I could go. I have to grapple with it more as, with the actual topography as a mountain than I think I did as a kid. Do you have a favorite mountain? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I live at the foot of Mount Timpanogos, and it's, it's pretty hard to beat. There's a lot of mountain there and a lot of terrain and a little bit of everything. So, I mean, I guess it's, it's the one I'm most familiar with at the moment. I have lots of mountains I'd like to become my favorite because I'd like to spend more time on them. But Like what? Uh, well, I mean, directly east of me is Cascade Mountain, which is the one just south of Timpanogos on the other side of Provo Canyon. And it is even more imposing in some ways than Timpanogos, and much less traveled. And I desperately want to get up there more, but so many mountains, so little time, right? Do you get up in the winter? Yeah, I love uh, being on the trails in the snow can be a lot of fun, especially if you get out, you know, right after a fresh snowfall, so there's an inch or two of fresh snow. Um, you usually don't need to put on crampons or spikes or anything, just some good trail shoes, and it's usually pretty good traction. And I love how the mountains <laughs> get still and quiet in the snow because the snow absorbs so much sound. So all you can really hear is that, you know, that crunching sound of each footfall, and you can see the animal tracks all over these areas that you thought were devoid of, because you never see a single animal when you go out. Then you go out right after a fresh snow, and already the place is just covered with tracks, you know. Um, yeah, I was out yesterday with a dog trying to figure out there was, it was pretty soft snow, but here were what sure looked like cat tracks just on the surface. Like, who's got, and they weren't enormous prints. They certainly weren't a mountain lion. They looked too small even to be bobcat. Who's light enough hmm. around here to walk on top of the snow? Yeah. Who knows? Like you say, you don't ever see them. Yeah. Or, or almost never seen ermine a couple of times 
Yeah, you see moose, you see deer, but but you don't see uh, you don't see coyotes, you don't see cats. They see us, right? Yeah. How did you get started trail running? So as I said, I grew up hiking a lot. Then I spent a decade in Nebraska. Um, I didn't do much hiking out there. But then I moved to Utah a little while back and was excited at the prospect of getting back into you know, hiking and maybe mountain biking, I was thinking. And my next-door neighbor, when I moved, I moved to Farmington up in Davis County, my next-door neighbor was this um, trail-running ultramarathon. And he wins, like, 100-mile marathons. His name's Matt Van Horn. And oddly, he was from my hometown. And so I, I was like, well, hey, what, what are some trails I should go hike on? And he's like, oh, you should try trail running. And I said, well, what's, what's trail running? What is this? And he's like, well, it's just like hiking, but you you run just a little bit faster. And for some reason, the, the concept had never occurred to me before. And so I said, and I, I just barely started, tra- I'd done like a 5K, I think like a five-mile turkey trot. Um, in the year previous, I just barely started trying to run. I'd never run before. And I said, well, that, that sounds great. And I went out, he showed me where some trails were. I went out and I was just immediately hooked. Being able to, to, to get up in the hills and to get some physical fitness in, do it a little more quickly than a hike and see, see more terrain in a single outing than I would otherwise. So how many miles a week do you average? Not, not much. Like maybe... Not much is not much for you. Like really, <laughs> like um, maybe like 10 miles a week. Really? Yeah, I mean, I only get out maybe once or twice a week, and yeah. lately a lot of that has been on pavement. It hasn't been in the mountains. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to, you know, find the time. Sure. Um, uh, but for me, it still kind of seems, well, maybe not quite as much. When I first started this, like, four or five years ago, even that was a lot. Um, to all of my, you know, ultramarathon trail running friends, it doesn't seem like much at all. And actually to a lot of just, you know, regular runners who go out and put in four or five miles a day. Yeah. I only do that once or twice a week, unfortunately. But, but then I'll randomly put in a 15 or 20 mile day, like up in the mountains, which then people think like, oh man, you run so much. I'm like, no, I just, every once in a while, I run really far. How much <laughs> elevation gain in a 15 or 20 mile run? Oh, up in the mountains? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. In a 15 or 20 mile one, you'd probably be looking at like, you know, three to five to seven or 8,000. I mean, it kind of depends on where you're going if you're summiting peaks or something are you big on peak bagging um i like i mean i love the idea of it i don't i just don't have to- much time yeah. um so i mean i have my little list uh of, of peaks that i've done i like to keep track of that on my blog but like i tried to do nebo last summer and i got chased off the bridge by lightning oh boy. um my family was out of town so i had the whole day with nothing to do right and it's like an hour and a half drive to the trailhead and then the entire, you know, hike, it takes a long time. And so I was like, okay, this is my chance to go down and do Nebo because it's a full-day expedition. Well, I don't know when I'll do it. <laughs> I'll get back there eventually. But. So were they, were the, the storms were coming up or you were just worried about it? No, or? I got on, I mean, I got up to kind of the ridge where you finally see down into the valley to the west yeah. and coming straight off the west desert were these huge thunderstorms. And I knew that they were on the forecast. And I was kind of right at the line where it was thunderstorms to the north, not many to the south. We weren't sure where they were going to fall. And some people were just coming off the ridge, and they're like, we could feel electricity in our fingertips. And so they were like booking it down. I was like, I'll call it a day. Exactly. (laughs) The the one and only time I tried to climb uh, Tukuniki Bots in the LaSalle's, same thing. This buddy of mine and I, we get up there. It's 4 o'clock in the summer afternoon. 
and we're just watching the thunderstorms come boiling up around us. Said, ah, this is a bad idea. Turned around and went down. Didn't feel anything. And then watched him from, from the house. I could see just watched him dissipate, go away. That's the fr- yeah. You never know. Like, yeah. The same thing in the Uintas, right? Yeah. They boil up in the afternoon, and sometimes it could yeah. it could kill you, and people other times it just killed. blows over. Absolutely, people get killed, as you say, and that's you know that's part of the thrill of it. When you do that, do you listen to music? Do you have headphones? Yeah, I like to. I have some headphones I wear. I got some new ones I wear that um, they don't actually go in your ear. They just kind of rest in front of your ears and they transmit sound like through your bones that I've been using and then I can hear stuff around me, right? So like in the summer months, I never wore earbuds anymore because I wanted to hear rattlesnakes if I was about to step on one. Now I feel a little more comfortable because I can hear ambient sound. I can use them running on the road and hear if a car is about to run me over or something. So I like those a lot. And I like listening to music. I've listened to books on tapes and podcasts. Sometimes I just put on some whatever music just to have something in my ears and zone out. Sometimes I inter- intentionally turn it all off because I want to enjoy the silence and I want to have my thoughts to myself. Sure. Kind of depends, you know, what kind of run you're, yeah. or how miserable you are in the middle of it. It's, and you're like, I need something to distract me from the pain, you know, so you put some music on, maybe. Do you have an app of any kind that, that logs you? I mean, you electronically? Yeah, I use uh, Strava. is a popular running and biking app. So I yeah. use that and it, uh, it motivates me to see if, like, I've... I do a route faster than I've done it before. It's kind of fun. I also like kind of just having a, a log of everywhere I've been. I, I use it to draw out maps of new places to go. And then I can follow, I can load the map onto my watch. And then I can go to someplace I've never been before and run around without worrying about getting lost. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not from Utah. And so that's really been essential to me being able to confidently go out and explore all kinds of new places. And people say, well, how do you know where to go? I'm like, well... I draw maps. I draw maps, and then I follow them until I really know the re- area. And then I'll just go out without a map and just run around. You know? Cool. So how do you think it has affected your scholarship? Well, it's gotten me asking questions I never thought about before. Environmental history has always been kind of a pet topic that I've enjoyed reading. You know, I'm from grad school, and since I've been just really interested in it. But having my own experiences out an extremist, you know, like having real powerful personal experiences in nature, you know, got me asking more serious questions about what is, what, what, what am I out here doing, right? Which, as a historian, immediately led me to thinking about, well, wh- why is there a history of people coming out and doing stupid things like this, right? It was a, four or five years ago, I'd never run a marathon before, I think I'd done a 20-miler once, and um, I was going down to Phoenix for Christmas, and where my sister lives, there's this area called South Mountain. It's on the south side of Phoenix, and there's it's these, all these east-west ridge lines. And I was like, I'm going to draw out, a, and there are trails on the ridges. I was like, I'm going to draw out a, a route on these ridges and go run it. So I drew out, it was about 29, 30 miles, which I'd never done before. And I go out and I do it, and in about mile 19 or 20, I got to the top of another ridge, and I just collapsed and had this emotional breakdown. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, why? Like, why, why, how can I be so stupid? Why did I draw it up on the ridges? Why didn't I just draw it 29 miles on the roads? It would have been a lot easier, right? And then I had this epiphany, like, oh, people have been intentionally coming out to Western landscapes, rugged wilderness, mountain landscapes in the West for centuries. 
for lots of different reasons, but sometimes to have very specific experiences. And so I started asking, like, what's the cultural history of this, of um, kind of Western mountain adventure, adventuring? What is it that people are trying to experience here? And I, and I started then asking, well, what am I doing out here? What am I trying to experience? And there's a lot of kind of self-realization there. But So that's kind of the new... Well, that, that's like one of the next book projects where I want to try to trace this history and answer these questions. There's a way to answer questions for myself and about all these, you know, nut job friends I have that do crazier things than I do, right? Like, like what's the story of people who did this before and then why, why are we doing it now? What kind of sources would you find? I mean, we'd start all the way back with, you have lots of indigenous traditions of, you know, for coming into manhood, some communities would have young men go out into nature and have very specific types of experiences of having to confront nature and, and conquer the wild and therefore, you know, enter manhood and conquer something within, right? You have mountain men, these generations of mountain men who go out and, and write about their exploits and write very specific kinds of stories about the adventures they were having. You have European royalty who come out, right, in the 1830s and 40s. They do these grand tours of the West because they're, they're looking, they, they want to experience some kind of wild Something wild that they're not experiencing, maybe, you know. So you're going to include in, uh, William Drummond Stewart? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love that story. All the, and and the, the, these wild stories, right? Yeah. But I think I'll bring it up to the present. You know, I mean, include, the, there's a current history of, a recent history of people trying to get, you know, fastest known times on the Pacific Crest Trail. There's that whole community. And then I'll bring it up to the present with my, kind of my community of friends now who run the 100-mile races or you know, up here in the mountains in Utah and elsewhere. I try to link all these together as part of a, a continuum of, of cultural experiences that people are use, using these landscapes for. Did you come up with any kind of conclusion or tentative answer when you were collapsed there at the top of uh, South Mountain? Oh, man. Well, I, I decided that, you know, a couple hours later I finished the route, and immediately my views on the matter very much changed because, I mean, I was in a lot of pain, and but I was no longer asking myself, oh, why did I do something so stupid? I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I'm so excited that I finished, and, you know, when can I do this exact same thing again, right? Um, and that's happened at some of the ultra marathons I've done as well. Halfway through, you hate yourself, and then the moment you finish, you're ready to sign up and do the whole thing again, right? And so, but I think there's something about extreme experience that looking back at in retrospect you, you you realize things that in the moment you may not right and so I look back at that a lot as I go out and you know next week maybe I'll go out and again if I do something stupid enough I'll I'll really hate myself about part way through but it all changes and I'm interested in trying to understand like what, what's that about what does I say about the human experience? You know, I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm not doing this for thrill seeking. But what is it about um, being out in wild environments and nature and having some kind of prim primal experience that, I mean, for me, is sometimes very spiritual, um, or if nothing else, very kind of personally insightful. I don't know. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, do you like doing organized races? I've done a few. Yeah, I've done. I've only done 50k ultra marathons. There's also 50 mile, 100 mile. Now there's 200 mile races that I have friends doing, which that's an entirely different beast, right? But they're a lot of fun. It's good motivation to sign up for a race. It's nice that there's aid stations. But I'm now realizing that 
um, I can just do it for free on my own. So the last time I did a 50k, it was just me by myself. I stashed supplies at a few places and went and ran 50 kilometers and had a really great day. Uh, it's a very different experience. Just you, it's just you and yourself. Take as long as you want. You don't have that pressure of of time. But doing a race is a lot of fun. Though. There's a lot of uh, there's a different kind of a different kind of excitement, you know. But it, it costs money. Sure. So, how far advanced is this idea of yours uh, about writing these natural challenges, these phys- physical challenges? Oh, like the book? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have the whole thing kind of sketched out, and I've started <laughs> research. But you know, as you mentioned, I just finished another book, and my work at the Red Center and other things keep me really busy. So, and I'm doing some consulting work right now because that's kind of the bulk of my my research and writing time is. I'm doing some consulting, and so it's years and years and years down the road, but I'll slowly just pick away at it for a decade and eventually put it out. Do you want to take the chance, uh, the opportunity to make a pitch for the Red Center? Oh, generally? Sure. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, for listeners of the podcast, assuming that if some of them are Westerners, I assume, I assume a lot of them are Westerners, at the Red Center we have lots of money we like to give people. We actually, it's just starting right now. The award funding deadline is March 15th. So we have categories of funding we'll give to students, professors, independent researchers, public organizations like historical societies, or just someone who's doing some kind of public event programming. We have all kinds of um, different categories of awards where if you're doing something about the West, and specifically often the Intermountain West, you know, apply for funding. And it doesn't, not just history, we give money to scientists, to people writing poetry, to sociologists and political scientists. You, you name the discipline, if it enlarges our understanding about the Intermountain West, we'll maybe give you some money to do your research. And um, we also have lots of events, we host lots of lectures. As you mentioned, I run a podcast for the Center and I run this digital public history, Intermountain Histories uh, website and mobile app, which you can use to find out about the history of where you live. We keep pretty busy. Well, that's great. Do you have a sense of how your students think and talk about living, working, playing in the mountains? Yeah, so last year I taught a Western American Studies seminar for the American Studies program at BYU. It was a really small class, and I think four of them were from the West and one of them was not. And that's often kind of about the ratio, maybe three-fifths to four-fifths of a class is from the West, many from Utah, but some from other places in the West. But um, whenever we talk about the environment or the word gets out that I spend a lot of time in the mountains, like sometimes I'll, I'll joke with my students, I'll hold extra office hours and I'll give them the GPS coordinates up in the mountains and I'll say, hey, I'll be up in a hammock reading a book for the whole afternoon if you want to come up for my extra office hours. No one's ever taken me up on it, but... Uh, they'll say, well, oh my, wow, yeah, the mountains look really amazing. Like, where should I, how, how do, like, they, they, like, they don't know how, like, how do I do this? And I'm like, well, you know, instead of like, you know, go west, young man, it's just go east, like turn east, start walking, and you're going to hit a trail eventually, actually pretty, pretty quick. And, you know, so I usually point out some trails to them. But unless they came up, unless they're locals who know the trail systems, a lot of them kind of live on campus and kind of in that bubble. I, know, I was a student at BYU a really, really long time ago, about two decades ago. I was a big hiker, a big mountain biker, 
And I think I only went hiking once or twice while I was in college. You kind of, I yeah, kind of had this really insular campus experience. And looking back, I'm like, oh, what a wasted opportunity. And especially, I think, for my own like well-being and mental health and enjoyment. Like, I should have been out in the mountains more instead of you know brooding in my in my room like with my guitar writing sad songs about girls or something. You know, I, sh- I should have been out in the mountains. It would have been better for me. But so I'm always encouraging my students to. And if you don't, they don't have a car, you know, find a friend who has a car, go find a trailhead and just go for a walk. Um, especially uh, here on the Wasatch Front where it's so accessible. You don't have to drive very far to get to a pretty great trail. And it's sad when I hear people not taking advantage of that. Yeah, I was talking in my first day of class yesterday in my History of Public Lands class. You know, we're 20, 25 minutes away from federally designated wilderness. Yeah. And lots and lots of other national forest trails, other trails. It's it's a pretty unique thing. Yeah, I mean, I've had neighbors as well. Like, I'll post a picture online of, you know, some run. They're like, oh my goodness, where was that? That picture you posted just is amazing. I was like, oh, that's such and such canyon. They're like, well, where is that? I was like, it's, it's literally three minutes from your house. And this is someone who's lived here, their neighborhood, the entire life. I just don't... But that's fine. Maybe they can stay in the city and then they'll be... I'll have a little more solitude out there in the mountains. I don't want it to get too crowded, but I'm always amazed by people uh, who don't take advantage of it. Yeah. So the places where you're running, is it always public land? Generally. I mean, they're in the foothills, you know, above Orem and Provo and Linden, which is kind of the area I live in. But there are some patches of private land, but there's public easements of trails that go through them. There's this one specific one that I, I spend a lot of time kind of in the area of, and there's archaeological sites there that me and one of our campus archaeologists are he wants to go catalog because we found out it's not on the state database and um we're trying to figure out okay is it on this public land or the private land and i think it's like it's within like 10 feet of of the line but the private landowners of there are really i i think the state has made them be pretty relaxed about it so uh, but it's mostly all public land forest service or the yeah, other sometimes you say that's wilderness designated which changes what you can and can't do sure but it's mostly all public land. Nice. Okay, well, is there anything else you want to tell us about your relationship between your hobby and your work? No, I don't think so. I mean, broadly, I say I think that's something everyone should try to do. Combine their hobbies and their work, make them one and the same, right? If you can be so lucky. Nice. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And that's it for today. We've been talking with Brendan Rensink of... BYU's History Department and the Charles Red Center. Uh, I'm Jeff Nichols with the Institute for Mountain Research. Thanks for joining us for the Mountain Stories podcast. Thank you for having me.